So this is a new world we're in. Igor, we've done things a little bit differently this time. Again, no music. What's going on? Uh, uh, yeah, hi everybody. Uh, we our podcast is uh, experiencing some seismic shifts in the same way how the world is experiencing changes due to the pandemic. That's right. And uh, we decided to shake things up a little bit. We recorded one podcast right before the pandemic started, and uh, Charles will tell us a little bit more about that in a second. And then we decided to go back to this person and ask her some questions about the meaning of wisdom in the context of the pandemic. Yeah, so this, again, I think we recorded this in March, which, as everyone, listeners will remember, was a bit of a uh, tumultuous time. And um, we have had this guest we were really excited about, um, and we got her to come back on earlier this week, so we're now in November, uh, to sort of reflect on some of the things that came up. So this is a March-slash-November mashup of a podcast bookending well not i was going to say bookending the pandemic that suggests it's over it's definitely not but um we're coming at it from two different points in time so again as eagle says a little bit of a a new way of doing things so our guest is uh, rika edmondson she is a professor in the school of political science and sociology in galway island she has been um studying and thinking about and working on the meaning of wisdom for uh decades and it was very exciting to have her on the show so um Let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. Thank you, listeners, for your continuing ongoing support and excellent feedback. Keep that coming. It really is uh, very encouraging to know that this is landing in the world and, and uh, being useful to people. Today, we're um, very excited that, to introduce Ricka Edmondson, who is a professor of political science and sociology at the National University of Ireland, Galway, as well as a visiting professor at Tampere University in Finland. Now, Rika, did I pronounce Tampere correctly? You did, yes. Excellent. I wasn't sure yes. about that one either. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining us today. From how I understand it, your research focuses on the sociality of reasoning, meaning making across the life course, and understanding phenomena connected with wisdom, as well as the development of new techniques for studying wisdom. Did that, does that sound kind of right, Rika? I suppose so, yes. Yeah, I suppose so. so. Mm-hmm. Okay, brilliant. I think Eagle was quite keen to dig into how you got to start to blend together your various different disciplines. So Eagle, over to you. Rika, how did you get here? How did you start studying wisdom? What was your path? To talk about how I got here, I suppose I started by studying philosophy at Lancaster University long ago. And mm-hmm. at that time, it was a very small university and the very new university and all the teachers were not much older than ourselves, the students, and we got into the habit of discussing everything all the time, which was a wonderful experience. And studying philosophy, it was important to me because in philosophy, you always are anxious to find what concepts mean, and you're very conscious that it's not obvious what concepts mean, Mm -hmm. so that you can spend ages discussing what the idea of what, what the word good means, or what the word humility means, or what the word wisdom means. But according to 20th century philosophers, really meaning is to be found by looking at what people do, how they use a word. So you can't find what a word means by looking it up in the dictionary. You have to find out how it's used. Mm -hmm. So that's my, my first problem, really, with trying to understand words like wisdom. We need to know, I think, how people use them. 
and to go about finding finding out about that. I think you need to look at the different methods that different disciplines have. And to me, those methods are very, very, very disparate. The disciplines have diff- very different approaches. Hmm. I, I mean, really significantly different. And I think that, that those differences are bound up with the ways in which they conceive of what a human being is, which in, in philosophy, they call that philosophical anthropology. So what is a human being? What's a person? Is a person really separate from other people? Or in some way, are we all joined up together? Like so, a superorganism so, or something like that? Oh, well, <laughs> a bit like, I suppose a bit like a superorganism. Mm-hmm. In, that we're, in that we're all connected in, in terms of what we think and feel and say and do. We all draw on the cultures mm-hmm. of the countries that we live in or the mm-hmm. professions we belong to or the families we live in. So the stuff that I think, I don't make all that up. I, I draw on the social surroundings that I live in. So just like to break that down a little bit yeah. for our listeners. Uh, mm. So when you say sort of like drawing on social surroundings yes. and uh, separating the self uh, from the social surroundings, that sounds a little bit like some approaches in uh, empirical sciences where some researchers focus mostly on the person and others may be focusing on the cultural context or yeah. the interaction between the social and the person. Is that sort of along the lines of yeah. what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. In the 20th century, in the 1930s, there were a couple of uh, Harvard graduate students called Ahrensberg and Kimball, and they came to study what Ireland was like. They said that they they were looking not for individuals as much as for relations between individuals. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of emphasis that the sort of sociology that I do has. I mean, there are other kinds of sociology, but the kind of work that I do is particularly directed towards trying to find out how we relate to each other. Yeah, it's really interesting because uh, it's also how I find some psychologists have this uh, general bias towards viewing wisdom through the lens of a person and um, often forget about the social environment or sort of like filter the social environment through the, uh, through the person, through their subjective experience of the social environment. Exactly. And, and, and you're saying that there's more to that, right? That there is an interaction exactly. between the environment uh, and how this environment may even shape our subjective interpretation Absol- of the reality. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what I think is great about your work, Igor, is that you're interested in this kind of issue and you've worked on the idea of cultural differences and stuff like that. And I suppose what sociologists do is really hone in on those kind of connections, trying to find out to what extent we draw on the kinds of world that we live in. For example, I don't know, if you talk about something that's very obvious in the culture of the West of Ireland, funeral practices. Mm-hmm. People in the West of Ireland do funerals really, really brilliantly. They're and famous for their funerals, they're aren't they? Famous for their funerals. Wait, wait a second, exactly. I never heard of the Irish funerals. So tell me more about it. Oh, this is too bad. All about yes. the crack. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is. It is in many <laughs> okay, ways. That's, oh, yeah. I see. That movie. All right. In some other cultures that I've lived in, if somebody mm-hmm. dies, if a friend of yours dies, everybody's very confused and sad and they don't know what to do. In Ireland, you know exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. Everybody goes to what's called the, the removal. Either the, the dead person is in a coffin in the house where they've lived in, or else they're in a funeral parlour. And if they're in the house, then the neighbours will bring food to the family who live in the house so that they don't have to cook their own food, they don't mm-hmm. have to be hospitable yeah. mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. way. But yet everybody yeah. who comes to the house can get something to eat and drink. And right. people sort of hang around for a long time discussing discussing maybe the, 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 the person who's died and the kind of person they were, but also just discussing everyday stuff. 
mm. not necessarily anything to do with the person at all. And the next day, there's the funeral service. And after the funeral service, if you can, you walk with the hearse with the coffin to the graveyard if it's close enough. Mm. And if you're lucky, it's your neighbours who dig your grave. So, uh-huh. yeah, so... In, in fact, at some funerals I've been at, they dig the, dra- the grave very carefully. They turn back the, the sods of turf where the grave is going to be, and they put the coffin in. And, and they, they pray the rosary as they put the earth back. And you can hear, sort of, you can hear the rhythm of the, of the prayers mm. interspersed with the way in which the, mm-hmm. the earth goes back into the coffin. They put hay down on the coffin so it doesn't make too much of a noise. And so there's... a a sort of constant rhythm of prayer and filling in the grave, and then they roll back the turf on top. It's really, really interesting from what you're describing right now, Rick. It seems like there's a lot of focus on the actual activity and less Precisely. on some kind of a meaning. What is the meaning of the funeral? That is How exactly do feel it. About exactly. It? That's exactly it. And when you go to the funeral and you say to the to the family, you say, "I'm sorry for your trouble." And that is to sympathise. It's not. Mm. It, it's what you do that expresses sympathy, mm. rather than some sort of subjective feeling that you have to have. So this is a practice, and in my opinion, it's a wise practice because it it really helps mm-hmm. you cope with the death in a in a very consoling way. So I think that there's a kind of a wisdom built into that practice. But I don't think you could easily ask people about the wisdom of the practice. Right. I, I was going to ask about. Um when you're interviewing people and you're asking them about stories from their lives, mm. you know, they're, they're often, we often try to make ourselves present ourselves in a good light or justify something we've done. And it can get quite distorted. That seems that's quite established, I think. But it yeah. sounds like, um, from what you're saying, it's less interviewing people about their lives, but more yeah. observing what they're actually doing. Is that yes. right? Yeah. I mean, they call it participant observation. It's kind of living along with them to the extent that you can. I mean, in terms of the work that I like to do, I think that there are all sorts of reasons not to ask people about their own wisdom. Mm. I mean, certainly it's, it's a tradition millennia long in the study of wisdom that we're not very good judges of our own wisdom. Right, right. I mean, to the, yeah. No? I mean, to the extent that we've ever done anything that was wise or sensible, we maybe didn't notice it. And the things we did think were wise and sensible possibly weren't. So I, I tend to get people to talk about other people that they think were wise. Mm. I find that people talk more interestingly about, and more readily about mm. other people. When their reputation is not necessarily on the line, they don't have a, an identity to protect or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. I don't think that anybody in the West of Ireland would set themselves up as, as a wise person. It's not the kind of thing that people do. There's also a question of, you know, because you're being so particular you know looking Mm. at a specific community and you're looking Mm. at a a very sort of specific number of uh, members of that community Mm. is there a question about how how valuable that is to map onto other communities does it can it say anything about other people in other times or can you only really come to the conclusion this seems to be here and at this time this is what wisdom looks like here is it limited in its sort of transferableness yeah i think to I think to begin with, it's very limited. To begin with, you're, it's hard enough to try to find out what's going on around you <laughs> without, without saying, well, look, it's the same over in Japan. Right. On the other hand, you quite often do find things that seem to be comparable from place to place. So, for example, the way in which silence can be used in the West of Ireland, it's often really misunderstood 
by English people who regard it as perhaps evasive, which it's not really meant to be, I don't think. But I mean, supposing you say to somebody, oh, what do you think of the local doctor? She's a really nice person. Mm. And then that person doesn't say anything. And if you insist on the question, your interlocutor will agree with you. But in fact, the silence is meant to indicate demoral. Mm. It's, Mm. It's meant to indicate not necessarily agreeing with what you say. Without but saying, having to without, say it. <laughs> without having to say it, because why would the person want to be trapped into bad-mouthing somebody else? There's a, whole, there's a whole set of attitudes towards what you should and shouldn't say about other people, which can be expressed through silences. And I think that you can find that phenomenon in, actually in lots of other cultures, including Japan. Some people think, you know, when they read ethnography or when they read qualitative sociology, they say they find all these examples in people's texts and they think, oh, well, mm-hmm, these mm-hmm. are lovely examples, but they're just stories. They don't, mm. um, they don't, they're not general. Yeah, so what do you do about that? Yeah. Well, what it is, is those examples are not meant to be typical in the same mm-hmm. way that, I mean, supposing I were a food nutritionist and I were investigating the nutritional value of cornflakes, I'd have to make sure that the cornflakes I was testing were the same as all the other cornflakes, because that's the kind of generalization that I've been making. But in ethnography, what you're trying to do is give examples which allow the reader to infer to the kind of social world that the people live in that you're describing. So it's a, so there is a sense in which it's there's a general reference of the story. It's not just a story. It's not intended to be generalizable in that you'd expect there to be lots and lots of others exactly the same. Mm. In fact, some stories are important to qualitative work just because they're different. They're particularly important in showing you how people think in that particular place. So you wrote in some of your work that uh, wisdom may be constructed. Can you tell us a little bit more about what do you mean by the construction of wisdom? Well, what sociologists mean by social construction is that we that ideas are, are developed in society, among us, if you like, they're constructed in social interaction. So ideas about, I don't know, courage, for example, I don't make them up or look them up in the dictionary. I find them out from people around me or people Mm -hmm. I read Mm -hmm. about. And that's what they mean by social construction. They mean that these ideas exist between us and they influence us and we influence them. So the notion that wisdom is socially constructed would mean that wisdom is something that looks different to us depending on the different societies that we live in or the different traditions that we're familiar with. So that's interesting. But then the question becomes, can we even talk about a sort of a single wisdom or is it just like a recolor of different, you know, portrayals, ideas uh, that don't even have anything in common? So I guess, uh, again, the question comes down to some kind of a generalizable theme or uh, uh, what what can we even say is there a wisdom or uh, is it just a combination of very very different things i think that that is really an empirical question i think it's almost too soon to say i, I that there do seem to be very very different approaches to wisdom for example or the no- I mean, the notion that you sh- some people think that you should live in tune with nature. They think that's wisdom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some people think you should um, spend your life in a pilgrimage trying to find the meaning of life. They think that that is wisdom. Mm, right. Um, some people think that wisdom 
is all about trying to achieve some sort of state of transcendence, whereby there are different versions of what transcendence might mean to people. So I don't think that these are very, very separate from each other, but how connected they are in people's real lives in terms of what they actually mean to other human beings, I think, we, I think that's something we have to find out. It seems to me that there are family resemblances between them, that mm-hmm. the notion of wisdom is like a sort of a big sea with eddies and bays, and some of them are more connected than others. But I, I think it's a question of, of finding out whether we'll ever get to something that we can say, well, all concepts of wisdom have this in common or that in mm. common. We decided to follow up with Rika about the meaning of wisdom from the pandemic perspective. Rika, what does wisdom look like now? Do you think the meaning of wisdom has changed since the pandemic? What do you think? Well, I don't think the meaning of wisdom has changed, but I think it's very common in crises for people to reassess their values and their priorities and to resolve to practice them more closely. So you can see people talking about valuing their personal relationships with their family and friends or being critical about shopping and consumption, or valuing people in relatively low-paid positions, people like carers, delivery drivers, cleaners, people where we've all become very much aware of our reliance on them. And we've all, I think, become able to appreciate them personally. So those are, those are some of the changes I've noticed people talking about. And also, in particular, of course, environmental questions. Both those last two are sort of practical as well as idealistic. We've seen that we're crucially dependent on other people and crucially dependent on the environment. And I think this has is, this is encouraged people to think about the way the world is constructed and to think about how it's going to be constructed into the future. How are we going to safeguard the planet and safeguard the futures of young people going forward? The, the question is, of course, how do you make all these good resolutions stick? Because after crises, people tend to find themselves going back to their old habits because the institutions, the arrangements, the practices that we're used to are, are what's there in the world. So it's not very easy to, to resolve to cycle to work if there aren't any cycle, cycle lanes and so forth. So... If I could just add one more thing, I, I listened with great pleasure to your conversation with Judith Gluck recently, mm-hmm. and I agree with so much that she said. Uh, but I, I would like to extend the study of wisdom into this interpersonal realm. Judith mentioned that talking to other people can enhance the wisdom of what you decide, depending on right. who you talk to. But I think that this is because wisdom is often a sort of a co-production. It, it belongs to the two of us or the ten of us or however many people are talking. So I think that to preserve these good intentions, we need to, 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 to think about how to support wise ways of practicing, wise interpersonal social habits. I like that. I like that a lot. One thing that I found very interesting in some of uh, your attempts to systematically classify, or suggest at least one way mm. to classify this uh, sea and uh, lakes and, uh, and bays, uh, of wisdom is uh, this idea of uh, basically you have the intrapersonal theories focusing on mm. the person on the mm. one hand and then more interpersonal theories of wisdom on the other hand. Mm. And at the same time, there are some theories that suggest that wisdom is about perfection 
and yeah. others that suggest that, well, you know, it's more like day-to-day things and uh, nobody is perfect and sometimes you show it, sometimes you do not show it. Yes. And I, I can certainly see that uh, those theories manifesting themselves even in empirical scientists, uh, yeah. sciences. So uh, can you tell us a little bit more about this uh, balance between interpersonal and intrapersonal on the one hand and the imperfect and perfect on the other hand? Well, I think from the beginning of the discussion of wisdom a couple of thousand years ago, there's been a sort of a tension between all these different approaches to wisdom. Some people have wanted to think, well, wisdom, to be wisdom, you've got to be absolutely, you've got to know everything. You've got to, mm. you've got to be absolutely self-controlled. You've got to be absolutely right. interested in other people's good and not your own. So, for example, the, Epicure- the Stoics would have thought, well, that this kind of person can only ever exist, if at all, every few hundred years. Or some people would say, well, this idea of wisdom is so elevated that it's really only God or the gods that can be considered to be wise. So divine quality of wisdom. Absolutely, yeah. And there are different degrees of perfection that people attribute to others that they consider wise. It's kind of interesting the way in which people talk about people that they think are very good because I'm, I'm always confused about what they really mean when they do that, when they say, well, Mahatma Gandhi is wise, or what do they, what do they mean? What, what do they know about Mahatma Gandhi that makes, him, makes them think he's wise? Do they think that he's right. a kind of a perfect person? I and mean, some, people, some people say that they think Winston Churchill was wise. Mm. I, I don't know why I <laughs> yeah, say that. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean, you can say that there are all sorts of important and significant things that Winston Churchill did. Mm. But it's confusing right. to me that somebody would want to call him wise. So sometimes when people talk about wisdom, they're sort of projecting an idea of perfection on mm-hmm. onto figures that in real life may have been a bit different from how they're thought of. So there are ideas of wisdom which concentrate on this notion of perfection, but other ideas of wisdom which I think are, to me, more interesting because they accept the fact that we're all a bit of a mess in many, many ways. But still we can be helpful to each other and we can be helpful together. Mm. And I think that, I think Aristotle says somewhere that sometimes even a collection of unwise people can come together and through their interaction come to a, a wise decision. So to me, that's a more interesting approach to wisdom because it's sort of more realistic. One thing that you highlight there is also this uh, interaction between the interpersonal, intrapersonal, this kind of focus also on social environment. So what is, uh, from your sociological perspective, the role of the social environment for the construction of wisdom and maybe also for its manifestation? Well, I I think, as I said before, you can live in a social Mm -hmm. environment which encourages or discourages certain kinds of wisdom. I mean, some people think that the very competitive, individualistic society that we live in discourages us from being wise in certain ways. However, we can find, I think, lots of examples of people working together to be wise or to work wisely. You can find people doing social work in their districts, for example, and coming together to do that, which Mm -hmm. I think, uh, again, drawing on local patterns of how you can support other people. Um, And I think think you can call those wise. You can call those circumstances in which um, people can behave wisely. I wanted to uh, ask a little bit from your experience 
with so is the Galway Wisdom Project is that the name of this ethnographic study is that right yes the Galway Wisdom Project is a loose confederation of people working on wisdom including the philosopher Marcus H Werner the psychiatrist and artist Jane Pierce my colleague Carmel Gallagher and others there's a, st- a funny story that maybe I could ask you to tell but the, the question that is hopefully going to lead to that is where from your experience with this project in Western Ireland mm. does it make sense to look for wisdom? I mean, because most people think of wisdom as being, you know, as a wise individual, there's a wise person. So if you're trying to work out who's wise, you need to identify the characteristics uh, of that person and their views, perhaps. And, and that will determine who's wise. But you also kind of, it seems like you've got a sense from the project in Ireland that wisdom seems to exist between people or, yes. or what they do or their actions or yes. how they express things. So I'm interested in knowing about that. And you, and the, the reason it seemed to resonate from Ireland was you told this story about your dogs getting into a, a field <laughs> and yes. you kind of thought I should do this. And, and then yes. you were sort of scolded for doing that. So maybe you could tell us that and how that kind of fits perhaps with this idea of where is wisdom within the individual or is it within, within people? Yes, I, I don't think it's a story about wisdom. It's a, it's a story about my own lack of wisdom, if you like. <laughs> um, because when I first came to live here, my, I had a couple of dogs and they would range over the countryside because they could quite easily get over the walls <laughs> and they would go and ferret in the compost heaps of the neighbours who mm-hmm. didn't like it, understandably enough. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So, so I... So I mentioned to somebody who lived nearby that I was going to go round to the neighbours and apologise. And it was made quite clear to me that that wouldn't be a sensible thing to do. And again, mm. that's what I call sort of a Zenism, it, which I spell X-E-N-I-S-M. It's a, it's a term I use to mean something that happens that brings you up short because you can't understand. Right, the surprise why. element you were yeah. talking about earlier, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, what can be going on? But yeah. I noticed that that really the way in which people talk to each other here is not really about themselves and their own subjective attitudes so much. People try to talk about what's of common interest. So if you met somebody in the street, you wouldn't sort of start talking about your hopes and fears or the latest article you were trying to write. You'd talk about something that you thought would interest them. Because the idea is, I think, the sort of implicit idea is that you shouldn't try to influence people to feel in a certain way mm. by exposing your own feelings to them. So it's so, almost manipulative, is it? I think so. So if mm. I'd have gone round and said, look, I'm terribly sorry, mm. that would have been okay in England. That, in fact, mm. it would have been expected in England. Yeah. But here it would have counted as right. trying to sort of almost bully them, the person I was talking to, into, into sympathising with me oh, I'm so terribly sorry, I've let my dogs get out of control. There was only one way I could fix the situation, and that was by mm. stopping the dogs being out of control. That's, so, that's interesting, mm. just because I, 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 from when I read it, I thought it was you were suggesting they didn't value someone's internal state. They valued action. But perhaps you're suggesting, suggesting if they mm. feel manipulated by it, mm. they must feel it, it means something to share your internal state. Yes. Well, people have internal states, obviously, but, but we're not supposed to use them Mm, as weapons. As weapons, exactly. Exactly, Charles. So, yeah, I think that the way I was originally intending to behave would have counted as manipulative. I think it actually would have been manipulative had I done it. Because, in fact, to be quite honest, I would have hoped that they would forgive me when I expressed my sorrow. Yeah. But and you would, rather than actually, and you wouldn't necessarily have had to do anything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. As it was, so, I did. 
Yeah. Yes. So has that informed ha- where you think it makes sense to look for wisdom, at least in that community? Well, I think it's made me very much aware of the ways in which an awful lot that's important to people isn't stated and probably can't be stated. I mean, there, there are different, different cultures have different approaches to, to how much people should say. So, for example, in North America and possibly in Canada, people express their, in, their internal states quite a lot. They talk a lot about how they feel. And I think right. that, that may be because there are so many different cultures in those places that they kind of had to start mm. telling mm. each other what they feel because otherwise nobody would have understood Sure, yeah. because they, they didn't have enough common culture. But in other places, I mean, Ireland, I'm sorry, Finland is very similar to Ireland in that respect. In other places you don't necessarily want to talk about how you feel about stuff. And I think that that's made me more conscious of trying to find out indirectly what people's views are. What do you mean? Because in your writing, you said that human wisdom might take place in the inter- interpersonal space between a number of people rather than in one or other of them. So what are you getting at there? Well, supposing you say something to me that, that's very helpful to me, that's really an interaction. It's something sure. that we do together. It's not that you have a characteristic that I can label wisdom. It's the way, the way in which we converse together. It's, it's both of us. And I think that wisdom quite often happens like that, that it's, it's a joint product. So I've written about people in the medical world, working together to achieve wiser outcomes. Teams of colleagues with different sets of experiences are much more inclined to cooperate now than they used to be. So that would suggest if someone was wise, or well, I guess you can't say someone's wise, <laughs> um, but it would depend, it would only exist, it would only come to pass or, or, yes. or manifest if, if the, the other person in the conversation was able to make use of it. I, I sort of think that that often is the case. And I mm. think that you can find instances of it throughout history. Again, going right back to the, the, the beginnings of conversation about wisdom. If you look at Homer, if you look at the account that Homer gives of the wooden horse in Troy. Mm. So the Greeks build a wooden horse that they want the Trojans to bring into their city. And of course, it's mm-hmm. got soldiers mm. hidden within it. Yeah. And there's yeah. a, a chap called Laokoon who says, don't do it. It's, you know, you beware Greeks bringing gifts. There's going yeah. to be a terrible trick in this. And they don't believe Laokoon and mm. the, the worst happens. So right from the beginning of, of discourse about wisdom, people have adverted to the fact that mm. if wise advice isn't heeded, it's kind of null and void, that there has to be an interaction between people. And I think that when, when, you, when you look back at somebody you know and you think, oh, that, that does seem to be a wise person, I don't think really, I don't think it's always or perhaps not even often that you really think they've got all sorts of perfections and wonderful mm. characteristics. Mm. They're probably just as grouchy and cross and lazy mm. as anybody else. Mm. But they, they were able to sometimes to bring other people to a position mm. where they could see the world more constructively or behave more constructively. That's interesting because that does suggest a sage living on their own, meditating. You know, who it's they're not in a social context that they that that would sort of pull the legs out from underneath <laughs> the possibility of them being wise. You know, wisdom is social, but from what you're suggesting, 
Well, I'm not saying that every every, every sort every of wisdom yeah, has yeah, to be yeah, has to yeah. be social, but I yeah. think an awful lot of it is. We also wanted to follow up with Rika on what the implications for wisdom might be of our new social distancing behaviours. So wisdom requires or calls for social context, yet with the pandemic we're social distancing now. So what are the implications, do you think, of this, these changes in human behaviour for wisdom? Well, in a way we're not really socially distancing in the sense of being indifferent to each other. Because all the measurements that governments have taken and that localities have taken to try to push back the pandemic, all these measures rely on very strong senses of of solidarity, both local and national and generational. So it's been very moving to see how supportive people have been to each other. And I think particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, often people remarked how very social social distancing was turning out to be. People were contacting friends that they hadn't spoken to for years, for example. So I, I don't think that social distancing has become, has been really based on a notion of distance. I think it's been, I, I think it's, it's made us aware of our dependence on each other. It's been, it's made us more anxious to see each other. Mm. And I, again, I, I think that this needs to be supported by government, this feeling by governments and by political arrangements. In particular, I, I think it's been impressive how local uh, local arrangements have have supported uh, sociality during social distancing. People have organised right. to take food to older people and this kind mm. of thing. So social distancing was a different kind of sociality, I think, rather than an absence of sociality. Mm. Like I remember at the beginning of the pandemic when we just talked about, uh, you know, what does social distancing mean? And I remember I was so upset that somebody... I don't know which government decided to call it social distancing and who yeah. was the advisor of that person Absolutely. who called it social yeah. distancing instead of physical yeah. distancing. It's probably one yeah. of the biggest snafus of the first waves. You are absolutely right, Igor. That is absolutely right. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a, stupid, it's a stupid expression. Hmm. It hasn't been like with, that With all. meaningful consequences because I think people that misunderstood what it means. And also, I think so too. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. I'm just wondering... Can it be that even if I agree with this premise that it's about the social interactive qualities, mm. there surely may be some individual characteristics that would allow the person to have a, a smoother interaction or, or lead to this kind of wiser outcome in the interaction yeah. uh, than others. And uh, wouldn't it be reasonable to assume that uh, this type of characteristics may be either facilitating this type of uh, transactional wisdom or even be uh, basic elements of it on yes. the individual level? No, totally. I think that I think you're right about that, Igor. And uh, I mean, I think it would be very strange if we couldn't say anything about the kinds of people who are able to sort of get involved in constructive interactions with, with other people. It would be mm. quite odd if that were the case. This was the end of the original podcast. As we talked with Rika about the meaning of wisdom, we thought it prudent to go back and do a short retrospective with her about this issue through the pandemic lens. Here is our continued conversation half a year later. Okay, Rika, we are back. Um, And this is now, what is it now? It's the end of October. And uh, when I think back at our podcast, uh, when we recorded it, it was one of the last podcasts before the pandemic. And so I would like to take a step back and reflect a little bit 
on the meaning of what we've been through, what we are still going through, and what we will be going through, <laughs> not that we can predict anything, of course, <laughs> uh, uh, through the lens of uh, how we reflected on the meaning of wisdom. And I want to start with the actual term, the meaning of wisdom. So we talked about this term, and we talked about that we all connected, that we draw on culture we live in. And now, if you Talk about the present, the present moment, the pandemic moment that we live in through right now and taking a step back. What is the role of meaning and connection for wisdom now when you look at it through the lens of the pandemic? What do you think? Well, I think the pandemic has really highlighted our interdependence on this globe, both in negative terms, in terms of passing all illnesses, but also in positive terms, in terms of people's help and support and care for each other. And I think this, this, this notion of interdependence, for me, is very important to the notion of wisdom. And I think for right. Igor too, I mean, Igor, you've, you've, uh, written, you've used the phrase, an orientation to shared humanity when writing about wisdom. And rightly, you've emphasized the ethical component of wisdom. But I think that, again, wisdom studies need to expand when they're thinking about those ethical components, that ethical orientation to shared humanity. I remember organizing a, a seminar a few years ago about, mm -hmm. eth about wisdom and the common good. And it turned out that all the wisdom scholars there had a very different understanding of what the common good was. And <laughs> yeah, it's or, or very, what the common, very difficult. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very difficult. And ethical terms in general are enormously disputed. Mm. So I think that Loaded the pandemic... Too. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, to me, the, the pandemic demands that we think much more clearly and much more in a, in a very dedicated way about what ethics really means, what an orientation to shared humanity really demands of us, and how, how we're going to behave towards people and groups that are not our own. So I think there's a very strong challenge for us to think in terms of interculturality. If you look if you look at the globe, the globe, it's united in some ways in terms of this shared humanity, but it's also very divided in terms of different countries being anxious to get their own medications first ahead of anybody yeah. else, for example. Yeah. So, or, or people keen to give to give medication and protection to people they think deserves it. The question is, who deserves protecting? Do people in in very late life deserve protecting, for example? Mm. So there's there's there are a lot of new demands in us, or, or at least renewed demands in us, in terms of thinking hard about ethical commitments. And in, in a sense, this is just a challenge to the, the ways human beings need to live all the time. We mm. always need to work hard on deepening our moral understanding of ourselves and of our race, our human race. But right. the pandemic has made this, I think... Really, really pressing. Yeah, it's hard to think what will happen when the vaccine will finally come out. Everybody's just waiting Absolutely. for this vaccine. But at the same time, I'm really worried what will happen when uh, all the countries will start fighting. How many doses just did they get exactly. versus somebody else got? And this kind of nationalism uh, exactly. that is going with it. Yeah, and there's, there are very frightening divisions in um, in societies at the moment. If you if, uh, Today, when we're recording, the American election hasn't come. Mm. 
hasn't yet mm. taken place. That's but, right. But but America itself is such a divided country, and yeah, and it it is scary. We need to learn to to work with people who are different from ourselves, whose values we don't share. Yeah, and and, and I think this is this is one of the big challenges that the pandemic throws up, that that we care in the abstract about the whole of humanity, but concretely, when we're faced with other people, we don't always like them very much. So we have to learn to develop political practices and everyday practices that will help us to deal with these problems. In I very a positive much like way. that. Mm. Uh, very mm. much like that. Yesterday, I just spoke to a reporter from one of the Canadian networks, and they were asking me about exactly this. What does the mm. shared humanity or common or greater good even mean? Politicians mm. are using those terms, but I think those are just blanket statements because exactly. lay people cannot understand or may understand it very differently from how politicians meant it. Y- yes, yes. Although I think we can learn a lot. I mean, I, I don't myself use the term lay people. I just prefer to think of them as people. And I think... <laughs> well, this I is think, a scientific language, yeah. Yeah, of course. Of yeah. course, we're all people. Yeah. But, but I mean, but, but to me... I think we can often learn the most from everyday people and the way that they behave. From, as I was saying before, from, I don't know, from bus drivers or delivery men. These are people who often will show us what shared humanity is all about. And I think that's Absolutely. been yeah. so impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I wanted to turn to the future. Um, as uncertain as it is, um, and it almost feels meaningless to talk about it with any detail, but let's turn our eyes to the future. So um, the pandemic, you know, obviously it's brought a lot of dramatic negative changes as have been well documented, but um, yes. there've also been a, um, a number of surprising, unexpected positive changes. Um, and I, I'm kind of interested, Ricker, if, you know, um, what is there any type of wisdom that you think um, we need to sustain those positive changes or to prevent the negative consequences of the pandemic? Any, any particular um, type of wisdom that you think really should be front of, of mind as we look to the future post-pandemic? Well, I think you're right, Charles, to, to, to mention that pandemics can lead to very negative changes and work, for example, on the, on the consequences of the 1918 flu pandemic. Hmm. has underlined that in some ways it led to awareness of an interconnected world and the need for wide wide systems of health support. But on the other hand, it led to victim shaming. Hmm. And um, this can easily happen. People people blame those who succumb as being somehow weaker or dispensable members of society. So after the 1918 pandemic, you even got more support for eugenics across the world, for example. Hmm. And... Um, and it seems to me that that we combat this in terms of working out, as, as Igor was rightly saying, working out in concrete terms what a concern, what a, what a shared concern for humanity actually involves. I was looking um, the other day at the World Health Organization website, and they wrote, "Decisions made in the coming months can either lock in economic development patterns that will do permanent and escalating damage." to the ecological systems that sustain all human health and livelihoods, or, if wisely taken, can promote a healthier, fairer and greener world. Mm. So they were explicitly calling on environmental wisdom Mm. as underlying 
what we can regard as a concern for shared humanity. I, I think a lot of people would agree with that. Right. Especially given where the uh, virus, such as the current uh, COVID-19, is coming from. Coming from the animals to the humans because of the environmental catastrophes. Precisely. And the more that human beings encroach on wild nature, the the more likely it is that other zoonotic diseases will arise in the future. So we have an an interest. We We have a real practical interest in sustaining a shared world. Wisdom isn't just about us, the people who happen to be alive now. That's why young people in the environment are so important. Rika, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you so much for coming back to reflect on the meaning Mm -hmm. of wisdom and the meaning of interdependence and shared humanity in this challenging time. You're very, very welcome. It's a great pleasure and an honor to talk to you both. Thank you. Thank you.